That's the spirit breaking out in that man's life. You know what I thought? <laughs> if we, and I'm talking about me too, if we had a fraction of that kind of commitment to the kingdom of God and that kind of courage and that kind of dedication, this church would change Oxford County dramatically and indeed the world in Nicaragua and different places where we are serving. And I think we have a wonderful church. You know that, right? I love IPC. It really is a great church. But man, spirit break out among us. What would it mean? What would it look like? Well, we're going to find out, I hope, as we go forward together. I'm going to speak this morning on a, uh, on a passage which, uh, and on a topic, <clears throat> which I do occasionally speak on. If you're regular here and have been for some time, you know I talk about what the Bible says about giving to God. And there might be this collective sigh or groan going up to the heavens right now. I don't know. Some folks don't do about this, don't talk about this as pastors. I do. You know why? Number one, because of the um, prominence this teaching is given in the Bible. You, you cannot read the Bible without repeatedly being confronted as the people of God, if indeed that's who you are and what you are, with this reality. And why on earth would I, as a minister of the Word of God, not talk about what's prominent in the Bible, right? But I also tell you these things and teach you these things occasionally because of how important it is in your life. Um, in our day and generation, there are several idols that I think are prominent. And this isn't new to a lot of you, but money is one of them. Unquestionably, money and materialism, the things that money can buy, is an idol in our world. People worship it. They live for it. They love it. They serve it. They live their lives for it. And uh, I don't know that I can become more relevant as a preacher than talking about what it means to take the money that God entrusts to you, because that's what the Bible teaches. It's not ours, it's his. He gives it to us to use and for his purposes. And then come along into your lives and speak from the word of God and say, give it away, give it to God. So, you know, sometimes these can be challenging sermons. It might be for you, I don't know. Maybe for some people more than others. If you're giving faithfully, it'll probably be going, yeah, like, preach it, brother, preach it. If, if, if that's not necessarily the case, it might be, oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't really want to hear this. Here's, here's my comment to you before we really jump in, though. Um, this uh, sermon today really and truly is for the people who call Christ Lord. I don't know if that's you. I think I know some of you, and I know that that's you. But a lot of people here and guests today, too, which is really very cool for a wonderful baptism. But um, if you are not somebody who says, I have given my life to Christ, I am his wholeheartedly, I, my life exists for him, uh, and, and, and I'm committed to the things of Jesus... You probably just need to sit back and listen to this. Good information, you know, something to consider. Um, but it's, this is for those people who are IPC. This is for those people who have come to that place of absolute commitment of their lives to Jesus. Okay? And it's for you, I hope, that will <clears throat> speak into your life and bless your life and challenge your life and so forth. Um, and uh, I, I hope you hear the word of God in this. Not the word of Chris. <laughs> But this book communicated through Chris to you. So, uh, tons of ways we can approach this topic from Scripture. But I want to take you to the story of the Exodus way back at the, at the beginning of, of, uh, of the Bible, second book of the Bible. <clears throat> the situation is that Moses has led the people of Israel from Egypt. They've been slaves there. They've been in that part of the world for 400 years. 
they're suffering, they're oppressed. It's like an awful scenario, and he goes and he gets them out of there. And uh, God comes to Moses not long after they've left uh, Egypt, and he says, I want you to build me a tabernacle, or tent of meeting, some translations call it. And, and a tabernacle essentially was a movable structure, a place where people would, would worship God. Uh, the Israelites took it with them as they traveled when it had been built, and, and they would worship God there, they would sacrifice uh, to God there, uh, and, and it would contain, in the end, the Ark of the Covenant. You know, how many have seen movies about the Ark of the Covenant as if somehow it could still be found? I, don't, I say don't hold your breath on that one. That's pretty unlikely. Because it's not really important to find it anymore. What's important is to know what the book and the Bible and what God says about our relationship with him through its teaching. But the Ark of the Covenant was just a box, very ornate and beautiful. In the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. They're the kind of the moral law that the nation of Israel was to build its life upon, <clears throat> and which we still in many ways do, um, uh, and other things as well. On top of the Ark of the Covenant were two carved cherubim, two little angels, and the most significant thing was that between those angels in that day was where the presence of God dwelt. It's not like today. You come to Christ. The Bible says God's spirit dwells within us. He is right here. He dwells in my heart. And, 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 and he speaks to me and so forth. And that intimate intimacy with God is a possibility. Not then. Not before Pentecost. And God would dwell. His presence would be between these two little cherubim. And it was, as a result, an incredibly sacred place, this tabernacle, which was built. And God comes to, to, to Moses and says, make it happen. Um, and, and here's the instruction that he gives. Uh, Exodus 35, 4 to 9. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, uh, this is in response to then the commandment having been given. This is what God says to his people. This is what the Lord has commanded. Now, just take a moment and stop right there. This isn't a good idea for God's people. The Lord, God himself, comes to, the, to, to his people through Moses, his servant, and says, I'm telling you what to do. This is my command to you. Remember, I'm God, you're not, right? Here, here we go. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. I want you to remember how long ago this is. Thousands and thousands of years, God's people have been told to do this, commanded to do this. Everyone who is willing is to bring the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, another type of durable, uh, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and oxen stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. And basically, the command of God then goes on to talk about what the ark is to be. And Moses is communicating what's already being communicated to him. You can read about it in the earlier chapters. But God comes along and he says, I want you as my people to give to the creation of this sacred and holy uh, building. Let's jump down to 20 to 29 to see the response of God's people. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, for all its service and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, sorry, earrings, rings and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue, purple or scarlet yarn or fine linen or goat hair, I don't quite get the goat hair thing, but it must have been important, okay? Ram skins dyed red and other durable leather brought them. Those presenting an offering of silver or bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord. And everyone who had 
acacia wood for any part of the work brought it. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn or fine linen. And all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat hair. The leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate, breastpiece. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the, uh, all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Here's the response to the command of God. Did you notice the detail which it describes? They did exactly what God told them to do. They, they responded with incredible generosity. They responded in a, in a beautiful, if not overwhelming way. They heard from God and they gave, you know, gems and, 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 and jewelry and, and precious cloth. These are the things they really valued in their life, by the way. Understand that. These were things of great value and significance to the people of God. And they just came and they gave. But something that I want to bring to your attention that has captured my imagination and thus brings this passage to us today is something that, that happened as the work was being done in order to bring, uh, build the tabernacle. I want to tell you it's downright strange what occurred. Let me read to you thir chapter 36, verses 3 to 7. So they, um, these are the workers, those who are forming the tabernacle, received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. Every single day the people of God are coming to give more. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing. They just stopped. Time out. And said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. Now listen to this. This is strange. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because they had already, because they already had, uh, what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. I want you to get in your head how absolutely unusual this is. You know, people kept bringing and bringing and giving and giving, and all of a sudden Moses had to stand up and say, Stop it! Don't do that anymore! <laughs> Have you ever heard of this happening otherwise? It's like an overwhelming response to what God had spoken. There's this sense of, uh, of, of, of needing to restrain. That's the word in the text. That, that, that needed to happen. I don't know when you think of the word restraint, I think of a hospital, maybe because I'm there on occasion. And, um, you know, sometimes people maybe aren't in the right mind or they're, 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 they're not well and they're flailing about and they're hurting themselves and they're hurting other people and they have to be restrained. You know, straps put across their bodies so they don't hurt themselves or others. They were, they're restrained. These people had to, to be forced to stop <laughs> giving an, an incredible generosity and in a fantastic way. I've never seen that happen before, have you? It's like me saying, you know, we have our little handout here and we've got our budget on the back and, you know, we, you know our budget is 665000 for the year. That's our operating fund. And, and, and people here come and they, they give 800000 900000 Like, stop, please stop. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> it's an incredible, remarkable sort of thing. Now, this is just not a normal event as I've described to you. The natural tendency is the human, uh, for human beings is not to do this, right? The natural tendency of a human being is to make money and to hold on to it as much of it as you can, not give it away. 
to keep it. Um, you know, there are some who, who give next to nothing. The average Canadian gives $220, $220 a year to charity. And, you know, when I think about what uh, just one component of the Canadian population is the church, and there are many, many churches where people give the tithe, the 10% that we teach here uh, of income. That's a substantial amount of money. And when you put that amount of money together with the, to create an average of $220, that's a lot of people not giving very much. And there's some people who give, you know, out of obligation and, you know, kind of to, to soothe the conscience maybe that, that they have for whatever reason. But my, my, my question to you today, in, in, in a way that is contrary to what maybe what be normal in our society, is why on earth are these people giving in such, within such uh, incredible generosity? Why are they just, why do they need to be told to stop? I don't know where you're at in this, but understand this example that's given to us. And what I want to do is, is, is look, in, look at their context, look at the text. And I want us to think about why they were doing what they were doing, why they desired to do what they were desiring to do. Understand that. You know, they weren't having their arms twisted. <laughs> you know, they weren't being forced to do something they didn't want to do. They're, they're passionately doing this. They're pleased to do it. You know, they're glad to do it. And they want to give more. You know, it's weird, right? It's different. So I'm going to jump into the text and into the context, actually, and talk to you a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the reasons why I think this was going on. Number one, number one, these people had a direct experience of God in their lives. I don't think we can underestimate this. Here's the story. It starts at Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given. Um, you know, they come to Sinai, Mount Sinai, and Moses in a, minute, in a little while is going to go up the mountain, meet with God, get the Ten Commandments. As they approach that mountain, the presence of God descends on Sinai. There is smoke and there is fire and there is thunder and there is lightning. This is an awesome display of God's power. Um, a remarkable thing. Then Moses goes up into the mountain. And they're all told to stand back because if you touch the mountain, you'll die. It's like, whoa, this is, this is God. Ooh. But Moses is enabled and allowed to go up. And he's there for 40 days. And he's given the Ten Commandments. But before he returns, the people of Israel say, ah, he's gone. They get tired waiting for him. He may never come back. He's probably dead, whatever they were thinking. And instead of, of, of just waiting and being faithful, what they did is they took their jewelry. Now, note the word. It's the same thing they were going to give later on. They took their jewelry. And they gave it uh, all together. And, and they melted it down. And they built a golden calf. And they began to worship the golden calf. This is idolatry. This is exactly what the Ten Commandments are about to tell them not to do. This is exactly what they were used to in Egypt. They're just carrying on being the people that they have been in the past. This is normal for them to worship in, uh, you know, created things. Well, Moses come down, comes down from the mountain after the 40 days. And he sees what's going on. He gets mad. <laughs> like he is ticked. And he takes the tablets and he throws them on the ground. And he crushes these tablets that God has inscribed. And, and, and somebody else gets mad too. Anybody know who else gets mad? Nobody. Who? God gets mad. God looks at what's happening and, 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 and he gets angry. This is so wrong what's going on. People worshiping other things. His people worshiping other things. Dead things. Inanimate objects. And he's ready to wipe out the whole nation. He's ready to kill everybody and, and start over and, and through Moses and Moses' descendants form a nation of people for himself. But Moses, he's a Christ figure. He 
in many ways shows us what Jesus ultimately would do. He intervenes for the people of God. And he, he goes into the presence of God and he says, no, don't do that, God, please. Show them your mercy. Mercy, right? I, I see we've been studying it. Show them your grace. Forgive them for what they have done. And eventually God relents. And he shows them mercy and he shows them uh, grace and he forgives them for their sin. An incredible expression of himself to these people. But there's more than that, actually. <laughs> then Moses goes back up Sinai, meets with God. This time he has to chisel out the Ten Commandments himself. And, and um, he comes down from the mountain with the tab these new tablets. But there's something different about his face. It is shining so brightly and so powerfully that people can't look at him. He's been in the presence of God, and he has to cover his face with a cloth. And whenever he would meet with God again, his face would shine brightly. And it was too hard to look at. And he had to cover his face with a cloth. My point to you in all of what's happening in this, this experience of these people is these people are encountering the reality of God day after day after day. And it is these people who are so eager and so ready and so willing to give with incredible, incredible generosity to that God. My point is this. It is such people, even in our day, who are willing to give freely and easily and joyfully to the Lord who has revealed himself as a God of power and a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of salvation. I can't imagine anybody in their right mind who would give like 10% of their income, the tithe to God, unless they had such an experience of God. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody even think about that? But conversely, those people who have encountered the reality of God, at least in this instance, and I would suggest to you for all God's people, they, they go to a different place, a different heart, a different willingness, a different conviction about what they want to do, what they want to do with their money. And they are ready to give to God. Let me ask you this, to what degree... Take this, please, and process this. To what degree are you experiencing the reality of God in your life? You see, it's one thing to believe in God. Like, I believe, you know, God is in heaven. I believe Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose again, forgiveness of my sins. I believe in all the right stuff. If indeed you do that, it's an incredibly different thing. Having that belief to also encounter the reality of God in your life. That's God's intention for you and for me, by the way. <laughs> That's why he gave us his Holy Spirit, so he would dwell in our hearts, so we could experience him. You know that? He wants you to see his power. How many people here today are seeing God exercise his power in their lives so that they stand back in awe and think, wow, like these people did? How many people, you know, are seeing God provide for them, seeing God uh, guide them in specific and dramatic and remarkable ways? How many people here are seeing God protect them? How many people are seeing God show up and answering their prayers so that things happen in life that are completely unex unexplainable other than the direct intervention of God? How many people here are, have experienced the grace of God like these people did? So much so, not that, oh yeah, I believe in grace as God acting, treating me in a way I don't deserve and I'm forgiven. No, like that's, that's one way to live the Christian life, but that's not the way God wants you to live the Christian life. How many of you have so encountered the grace of God that you are deeply impacted by it, changed by it, awed by it? You see, there, 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 there's an issue. Um, there's a dividing line, and every single person in this room today is on one side or the other of this dividing line. There are those people in this church who, who are trying to prove their worth and their value to God, trying to, through their own good actions, gain the acceptance and the approval of God. 
That's how most people think. That's how human beings think before they encounter the grace of God. And on the other side of this dividing line are those people who, like the Israelites, come face to face squarely with their own sinfulness. God says in these texts I'm quoting to you today, these, this people has become corrupt. And there are people in this room today who have stopped trying to prove their righteousness to God and try to gain God's approval. Rather, they've come to the point of saying, that'll never happen in my life. I'm a sinner. And if there's any hope for me to gain the approval of God, I have got to go to the cross and I've got to get on my knees before God and because of my belief in what Jesus did in his death and in his resurrection, I'm going to confess my sin to that God and I'm going to be completely forgiven as the grace of God and the mercy of God floods over my life so that I become his and fully accepted and fully approved because of what Christ has done. Now I want to tell you those people who experience that dynamic reality by the work of God's Holy Spirit in them, we're blown away. We're awed by the grace and the mercy and the love and the salvation that God works in us. It has nothing to do with how good we might live our lives. It has everything to do with Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. That's an experience of God. That changes a person's life. Can I suggest to you it brings people to a place where they are ready to give like these people gave? Not because they have to, not because somebody's twisting their arm, but because their hearts and their lives have been so deeply impacted by the reality of God. So I ask you, are you experiencing God? I don't want anybody in this church, I don't want anyone who claims the name of Jesus to have an experience of faith, and all it is is what's in my head. It's got to be part of your life, and it's got to be the work of God in us by His Spirit accomplishing and awing us. Awing us, that's a little weird, huh? moving us, deeply impressing us because of what God has done. So number one, these people were experiencing God. It was real. It was, it was profound. It was life-changing. And I hope that's your experience. Number two, these people had an absolutely clear sense of what God wanted done, and they were eager to be a part of it. you have any sense clearly of what God wants done in this world and how you can be a part of it? I'm just going to use an example, uh, Exodus 26, verses 1 and 2. And this begins, this is part of chapter after chapter after chapter of very specific instruction from God to Moses about how to build this tabernacle, okay? So let's read that. Make the tabernacle with 10 curtains. How many curtains? No, 10. 11? No, 9? No, 10. He's being incredibly specific. Uh, of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Uh, it has to be that color. Yeah, it has to be that color. Very specific. Uh, with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size. Well, can't they be a little bit? No, the same size, God says. 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Uh, about 29 cubits long. No. And chapter after chapter, God gives specific instruction as to what he wants this tabernacle to be like. You see, what I'm saying to you, just by way of illustration, these people knew exactly what God wanted of them as a people. And it goes on to talk about the table and the lampstands and the ark itself and the, the altar and, and the courtyard and how big it was to be and the specific specifics for the priestly garments. Incredible detail. Fills chapter after chapter after chapter. Nobody had any question what God was up to and what God wanted. And they came to a place after God had spoken and they said, we want to be a part of that. 
Let us contribute to that because we want to honor God. We want to contribute so that this thing that God has asked of us might come to reality. You know, another way to say this, and this is a little more common in IPC, that these, the vision that God gave these people was absolutely clear. And they were committed to the vision that God gave to them. And as a result, they became incredibly generous to see it become a reality. My friends, I want to tell you, this is, I'm speaking to myself as, as I know the reality is of, of what it means to be part of a church. People give to vision with joy and with generosity. They don't give to a lot of things, you know. If I were to come out here and say, guys, uh, we need a new furnace. Oh, <laughs> okay. No joy, no, no passion. We need a new roof. I mean, who knows? Someday I'll maybe have to say that. But, but that's not what motivates people. That doesn't stir their hearts. There's so much that people don't get excited about that they don't become like these people uh, in regards to. But when, when God comes and God speaks and God gives a vision, that inspires a people and people are willing to give generously and passionately and eagerly toward creating what God has asked them to be a part of. They want to contrib contribute to something of great significance. They want to participate in something that will make a difference in the lives of people. They want to make a difference in this world. This was the case of the Israelite people. So my question to you, IPC, is who is inspired by the vision of this church? You know, what, what level of inspiration is there? Um, you know what it is, I assume. Number one, we are passionately committed to introducing people to Jesus, connect people to Jesus. There is a whole world of people who might believe that there's a God out there somewhere, but they have no experience of him. They're not awed by him. They haven't encountered his grace and his mercy. They haven't encountered his love. They haven't encountered his presence. God's just some kind of abstract object that exists. See, I believe in God. Well, the Bible says the devil believes in God. Big deal. What we're talking about is helping people come to a place where they encounter the living Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit and they experience this forgiveness and this grace and this embrace by God in their lives, full and complete acceptance of God. That, my friends, transforms people's lives and changes them for eternity. We're committed to helping people find that relationship with God. Second statement in our vision, connect people to Jesus deep in the faith. This is about people like you and me growing and continuing to grow as we deepen in our understanding of Scripture to the point where we become actually transformed by God's truth. You know, this is, this, this is such an incredibly important part of our vision. You know, what happens when people not only know Jesus, but really grow and, and be transformed by them, by it, so that we become like Christ? Those people become servants of one another and of God and of this community. Those people move away from idolatry, by the way, such as the Israelites had been engaged with, and they worship only the one true God. These people become filled with the love of God, and their lives become holy in His presence, and they give themselves wholeheartedly to the things of God. They don't live for themselves anymore. They live for Christ and for the kingdom of God. And they're passionate in that way. You see how those people would be just as eager to give as they would be to serve? They're in, both feet. And they want to see God come in power. And then lastly, we want to change the world. <laughs> That's quite a statement, huh? 
And we know we can't change the entire world. That's not what this is about. But we want to go out into that world, that community in which we live, and we want to see it made new for Jesus. Why does Joyce go downtown every Tuesday and Ted and so many others in that missional community and gather 30 to 40 people downtown Woodstock, uh, you know, on Dundas, people who are disadvantaged and who are struggling with addictions and all kinds of stuff, and just gather together with them and have a meal and experience community and share Jesus? Because they and we want to see this world changed. Changed. And there's so many other expressions of that happening. My friends, God wants to see this world changed. These people knew what God wanted. We know what God wants. And when people come to know Christ and they deepen in their relationship with him to the point of Christian maturity, then they give themselves with passion to seeing the world change. Now, Having gone over again our vision, how many of you find something stirring in your heart which says, I want to be part of that? My friends, people give to vision. And I want to suggest to you, to the degree that you are passionate about our vision, that's probably the degree to which you give to see it fulfilled, as was the case here. My prayer is that you're passionate about our vision and you give biblically and faithfully so that the work of God might be transformative in the lives of people and in the life of our community. So people give because they're experiencing God profoundly. They give because they knew what God wanted. They, he gave them a vision and they wanted to be part of the fulfillment of that vision. And lastly, and this is really important stuff, these people, um, they had just entered into a covenant with God. That means that God came along and he committed themselves wholeheartedly to the Israelites. And the Israelites came along and they committed themselves wholeheartedly to God. God said, I will be your God. I will, I will protect you and I will guide you and I will provide for you. Remember the manna, you know, and, and so many other things that God did, water from a rock and that whole story, if you don't know it, read it. But God was constantly with them and God blessed them and God took them to the promised land which he had promised to them, a land described as a land flowing with milk and honey, an abundant and remarkable place which they inhabited. God was committed to these people in these ways and so many more. And these people, <laughs> they were committed to God. They were committed to worshiping God and they were committed to being faithful to God as they lived their lives before him. Um, these chapters are filled with these instructions. You know, observe the Sabbath, God said. It's in the, it's in the Ten Commandments, right? One in, four, one in seven days, I believe the Fourth Commandment. You know, make it holy to me. Step away from your work. Worship me. Enjoy me. Know my presence. They, they, they talk about the festivals which are to be celebrated to remind them of what God had done. They, he he tells them clearly, do not worship idols, which of course they did. On and on it goes. Um, but in the end of the day, God, as part of that whole description about how he wanted to bless their lives, how he wanted to form their nation so that they would know life and joy and beauty in him. He comes along and he tells them to give to him. It's part of the relationship. It's part of the package. Always has been, always will be. Let me read to you uh, Exodus 34, 19 to 20. The first offspring, let me just read this 19 first of all. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me. Like, wow. <laughs> Including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. And we're going to read a little more of that in a minute. But basically what's being introduced here is the first fruits principle. How many people know what the first fruits principle is? 
Three of you. Okay, there's four. Come on now. Come on. Wake up, everybody. I know. I've preached about this. If you don't know it, we're all in trouble. But the first fruits principle, without going into great detail, is of the resources that I, God, entrust to you. In other words, it's my money. If you're his, the money in your bank account or in your wallet right now is not yours. You possess it. You hold it as someone who is responsible to spend it for the master. That's basic teaching on stewardship. It's not your money, it's God's. He entrusts it to you, and then he says, use it for me. And the first claim on that money is God says, it's mine. In other words, you don't spend all your money and what's left over you give to God. No, 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 God says, don't do that. God says, the first responsibility that you have before me is to take that 10% off the top and give it to me, and then the rest is, is my blessing to you to use according to my will, of course, but for your and your homes and your food and your clothing and all those things. But you honor me first in all areas of life, including your financial life. So when they got to the promised land and they had a, had a harvest and they were taking the, the crop off the land, God says, you give me the first crop. And the, the, the implication, well, wait a minute, God. If we put that in the bank, then we'd be secure. Then we'd be in the barn, sorry. Then we'd be safe and secure. And it doesn't matter what comes along. Then, you know, we can give you a lot later on. God said, no, 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 no. You give me the first crop, put it, put, give it to me, and you trust me to provide for you everything you need because I am your God and I am present to you and I am powerful and I am committed to your well-being. I'll take care of you. No, first of all, you give to me and then watch what I do for you in blessing. This is the beginning of it. Let's go to the next verse. There, there, there's a conclusion to this point. Redeem the first donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all of your firstborn sons, even my boys, yes. But then this statement, this is, a, this is one of those statements that stops me short, and I hope it stops you short. Because God then says this to his people, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Nobody. Do not come into my presence to worship me without a gift. Don't do it. It's almost like God's saying, um, <laughs> what does that say about me? What do you think about me? <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you honor me with your whole lives, including your financial life? God says, don't come into my presence without being willing and eager and passionate to give to your God. It's a powerful line to me. See, God's saying, as part of your worship, honor me. Show me how much you value me. Show me how much you love me. Show me that you're grateful to me. Show me your commitment to me by giving from the resources I have entrusted to you. Show me that I am your God. And all of this in the context of doing so with the right heart. I'm going to read four or five verses to you out of what we've already read from Exodus 35. And I want you to see the comment that is repeated in the text four, four times in ten, ver, uh, ten verses. I'm not going to read them all, actually. But four times, it becomes ten verses in, in, in total. We're going to read 35 verses 20 to 21. What is being described by God about the hearts of God's people? Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. God had just told them to give. And everyone who was willing and whose heart was moved, uh, whose heart moved them, came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, for all its service and for the sacred garments. Go then to 22. 
All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. This is their stuff. This is their treasured possessions. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Jump over to 26. All the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat hair. There's the goat hair again. And then 29, all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Why does God say four times in 10 verses, do it willingly? This is a big deal in the mind of God about how we are to give. You know, in the mind of God, there is nothing of obligation. There is nothing of guilt. There is nothing of, of requirement. It's all about our heart's desire. It's all about getting to that place where we come into the presence of God and out of love and out of gratitude and out of thankfulness and out of commitment and out of a great desire to be part of what God has called us to do, that vision. The people of God come and say, I want to worship you. I am passionate to give to you. I long for the opportunity to give to you. And in this instance, it happened so much that the leader had to step up and say, enough, <laughs> please stop. And the people had to be restrained because of that dynamic. It was in their heart to give. You see, my friends, these are the teachings that God brings to us about stewardship, about the use of our money, about giving to him. Just very briefly, I'm going to jump over to New Testament just so you can hear it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 to 12. It is so similar in, in focus. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, and here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter of giving. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. These people were living in poverty, and they had a passionate desire to give. And it bowled Paul over. It's remarkable. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion, completion of it according to your means. For the, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. In other words, if God blesses you with wealth, give a ton. <laughs> you, you're able to do it, do it because you want to do it. If God hasn't blessed you with wealth in such a fashion, the gift might be smaller, but if your heart is right, that's all that counts in the mind of the Lord and in his heart. And I want to finish this up by saying a couple of things. And this never has struck me before uh, I prepared for this sermon today. But because we're at the beginning of the story, almost the biblical story, it has struck me, and I want you to think about it, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the people of God have given to the Lord substantially Tithing is the biblical model and instruction as part of their relationship with him. This is part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. As they worshiped him, it was an expression of their heart's desire. And in the end of the day, the critical element is our heart. You know, the world says, and I've reflected on this a little bit before, make as much as you can and keep as much as you can. Right? Not what society suggests. Build yourself a financial empire. You know, grow your investment portfolio. There you have security. There you have power. There you have. <laughs> and God says, no, that's not the way of my people. That's not, what's, that's not what I want for my people. John Wesley, the great reformer who began Methodism and, and, and led a movement out of the Church of England uh, centuries ago, began the Methodist Church, essentially wrote this. Make as much as you can. Save as much as you can. And give as much as you can. 
That last little part's huge. Passionately, willingly, honor your God by giving to him from the resources that he has blessed you with and entrusted to you. And it'll happen because the hearts of people have been changed because they have encountered this God and they are passionate to honor him and to accomplish his purposes and to live for him. Final point. I want you to note, and I ask you to note that, the, that when they created the golden calf, people gave their jewelry, their earrings, and their brooches, and their whatever. And in the end of the day, when they were asked to contribute to the tabernacle, they, they gave their earrings and their brooches, their jewelry. The very thing that had once been used in order to worship an idol, the very thing that had been used to worship and create and worship an idol, God says, turn it around. Use it to worship me. I want to tell you one of the greatest idols in our society is money. People are living for it. People love it. People think they find security in it. When Jesus said it can be gone like that, and it is not to be worshiped. God comes along and he says, take that thing which maybe you have worshipped and give it to me and in so doing prove to me what's in your heart before me and who you really love and who you really value as God. My friends, the people of God for thousands of years have been told the same lesson. Don't worship the stuff. Use it for God's glory. Use it to worship him. Use it to serve him and to, to build his kingdom. Use it in a way that will bring him glory both in your life and through your life and in this world of ours. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, we just need you to come to us through your word, and we need you to challenge what is normal for us and to change us. We need you, Lord, to keep us from worshiping things. We need you to keep us from worshiping money and the things that money can buy. And we need you by your spirit to so transform our minds and our hearts so that you take us to that place where it's our deepest desire to honor you with our wealth. God, I would pray for everyone here today. I pray for those people who struggle with this lesson. And I pray, Lord, that they would encounter you. I pray that they would open their lives to you and that they would be absolutely blown away by your presence and by their experience of you day by day. Take them farther into faith, Lord. Help them to know your power and your love. Change them. God, for those people who... Are, 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 are living faithfully before you, I just pray that you'll bless them and you'll encourage them. God, we want to be the people that you call us to be. We want to be freed from idols and from the worship of them so that we can worship you and you alone. Lord, form us to be an increasing measure, a church which worships you, not only with our time and with our energy and with our gifts and our talents, but also with the money that you have entrusted to us. And God, through this church, build your kingdom. Let the vision become a reality, our Lord. Transform us so that we can transform this world in the power and in the grace and in the love of God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. I'm giving up.